This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy, and as already announced a few weeks ago, myself and Dan reviewed the new documentary, The Aerial Phenomenon, all about the aerial school incident uh, from the 1990s. It was a huge event, something that we've talked about for a long time on the podcast. We knew a documentary was coming, and I'm glad to say we have the director and producer of said documentary, Randall Nickerson, joining me on the podcast now. Randall, how are we? Hey, great. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome, and thank you, because you have been a busy guy uh, the last couple of weeks, haven't you? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been the Super Bowl of, of, of times, you know? Yeah, and do you know what? In a very positive way, because right off the bat, people who have listened to the, the interview that, or the, the review, sorry, myself and Dan done, will know it was very positive. Um, though people ha- know how honest we are. And right off the bat, this was very much a documentary we both enjoyed massively. And it's, uh, it's going to be good to talk to you about it. And first question, Randall, for you is, when did you first become aware of the aerial story itself? 1995, uh, I saw the first time I saw the videos of the children. Yeah, and I, uh, it struck me. I never forgot about it and uh, wondered. And I just, re- you know, when you see kids interviewed like that, you can tell honesty you know and you can tell if somebody's making you know there's a lot you can tell that i could see in that first interview or first time i saw that footage and um yeah that made me interested but i didn't didn't start until 2007 12 years later and i've heard you say on another interview that you never really had an interest in the ufo subject before before this would that be right um in in well I wouldn't say that's true. I would say that, you know, I was built growing up building models of aircraft carriers and airplanes and, you know, I wasn't building models of UFOs, you know, or that wasn't my thing. Um, but I, you know, I, of course, like growing up in that time, I, I watched TV and stuff like that, but I was, it wasn't a thing that I was, if anything, it scared me more than anything I wanted to really look into. And with the actual event itself, uh, several people will have already seen the documentary by this point. I'm sure many will be will be planning on watching it. Can you take us through a high-level overview of the actual event? Yes. Uh, well, it didn't start with Ariel. Um, uh, it started uh, several, the week, week of Ariel, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then it continued after Ariel as well. Um, but Ariel seemed to be the event that was covered because there were so many witnesses. But what happened was uh, there were uh, a number of children at the aerial school who witnessed a, first of all, a silver craft in the sky that was doing bizarre things. Um, And then according to their testimony, they said it set down near the, the edge of their field. You know, there was a boundary where they couldn't crop, they couldn't, go over that boundary because of snakes, baboons, all kinds of wildlife that we don't even see here. And um, they watched it. Several, you know, uh, a large group of kids gathered at the, the the bottom of the playground and looked at this thing. And then they saw these creatures, I don't know what you call them, get out. Um, And one, at least one, approached the, the playground itself and 
there was some kind of experience there between children and this strange creature. And uh, the kids uh, all went running and screaming after a little while, because basically because of the sound it made. Um, and then went into the teachers and told the teachers like a hundred kids. And, you know, the teachers <laughs> didn't believe them at first. And it wasn't until, uh, actually the teachers didn't believe them that, that the kids went home and told their moms and dads and all the moms and dads called the, the school, like what happened to our kids? And <clears throat> that's kind of how it all, all started. Uh, then the BBC showed up. Somebody, one of the parents knew somebody from the BBC and called him, thank God. And he showed up and started filming right away because he thought they saw some kind of military thing or, you know, he, was, <laughs> he, he couldn't believe that they were actually being truthful. But <clears throat> they kept saying, no, this thing was round, um, silver, really bright. And, um, and then the story just got even more bizarre for the BBC reporter because... That was not his game. War zones were his game. Atrocities, filming atrocities was his profession. And that was Tim Leach, and he was a foreign Tim affairs Le correspondent, wasn't he, for the BBC? Correct. Yep. Uh, and actually, Tim Leach, I think his, his comments in later years were that that destroyed his career, the reporting of the UFO story, and the fact he was so serious about it and so adamant that, no, this happened and this is something really serious, just it had an effect on him. And I think that's something that comes across in the lives of those the documentary also focuses on as well. Correct. Yeah. it's hard, it, You know, up until recently, it's been really hard to talk about any of this stuff without being ridiculed or... You know, it's, it, it, things have changed, and that's a good sign. We, we should be able to talk about these things. A lot of people see weird things, and they never say anything, you know. There's so. been other events that have happened before this, since this event, and it's taken a quite a while, best part of 15 years, for this piece to come together. What about this particular event for you drew you in and really pushed you on to make the, the documentary? Well, <clears throat> I started with, you know, uh, archival footage. I, I didn't meet anybody yet in, in the early days. And, and I found the aerial school, which, you know, everybody said was not even there anymore, not running. It burnt down, all this stuff because of the, um, political upheaval in Zimbabwe. Um, but when I went over to the school, as soon as I found out it was there, I just got on a plane, which was, <laughs> which was pretty crazy. <laughs> from a small town boy to go to Africa like that. Um, anyway, uh, but it, it was, it was meeting the people, you know, I, I, uh, meeting the teachers, meeting the, the kids that are, you know, are now in their thirties, some, some are in their late twenties and it was them. It was talking to them and hearing from them today that this really happened, you know, adamantly. And looking in their eyes, knowing they weren't, you know, looking for attention, they weren't looking for anything. They were just, that really happened. And that, that to me, that motivated me to help, I want, really want to tell their story because they weren't looking for fame or fortune. They just had a story to tell. And the same story they were telling in present day was the same story they were telling in 1994. 
and at that time when you first jump on that plane from from your you know the small town boy out to Africa that's a, a hell of a journey you're you're putting your own money into a project at that point that's not even off the ground aren't you so you've right. got to have a huge level of belief not only in the story but yourself that there's a story there to be told yes I knew there was a story to be told when I saw Max footage but I didn't know what the story was I needed more evidentiary material from other people that interviewed the kids, which is what I found. A lot of other people also interviewed these children at the time. And that just corroborated because their stories were the same, whether it was two weeks later, a month later, six months later, a year and a half later, there's still their story didn't get added to or subtracted from. It was the same story. And it was the honesty, honesty. You know, you can't fake that. And the one of the local MUFON investigators, Cynthia, was Cynthia. the first, yes, first on the ground, kind of asking the questions and interviewing the children. Um, she had some assistance. Gunther uh, was one of the gentlemen helping her, and they they put across the story fantastically. And I think that's some of that archival footage that many of us will have seen in various documentaries throughout the years. But like you say, I think the story really goes on a, a notch and a level when John Mack is introduced. And I think mm-hmm. you tell that very well in this documentary that when he comes into it, he, he interviews them one-to-one. He approaches it from a, a psychological point of view. He approaches it, you know, forget the UFO story. He asks them about their feelings, their thoughts. And that's when a whole other level comes out to this story, doesn't it? That's correct. Yeah. It was his training and <clears throat> sensitivity, you know, to, uh, to even know to ask the, those questions because nobody really had enough training to ask those very specific uh, questions. But he had so much training. That man, he wrote so many books, you know, on uh, on um, suicide, on drug addiction. I mean, he's he was a legend at Harvard, and he's, he still should be, you know, um, just because he went down this road, which he was correct about. Uh, that man should be honored, to be honest. Yeah, and you see some of the the juxtaposition of how people see him then and now throughout the documentary. You see clips of some of his colleagues lambasting his choices and talking about the UFO subject in a serious way. And I don't know how closely you follow Avi Loeb, but I saw a lot of similarities now. Avi Loeb's a Harvard astrophysicist who famously last year on a Zoom call had his colleagues calling him out in the same way criticizing and mocking his talking about the ufo subject and him writing a book about it and i just see a very a lot of similarities there as well but you you mentioned a lot of things have changed in terms of the stigma around the subject but things like that are still stopping that mainstream attachment from from really serious people and that that's still disappointing you know it's it's gonna take you know it's gonna take us a while um I'm glad we're things are moving forward, but I think for a lot of people, it's just hard to wrap your head around it. And the unfortunate thing, I think that, you know, we we like to think we're the smartest things out here. And that's a tough one to confront that we're not. But of course, I mean, if you look out in the universe, boy, someone's, someone's had to be driving around out there for a while. We're kind of late on the game, to be honest. Well, something or someone certainly seemed to have landed on the outskirts of that field. And one of the children that day of the the 80 or 100 or so who reported it was Emily Trim. And Emily is a huge part of this story. Her narrative is woven through the film and she very much goes on her own journey from the start to the finish. We keep coming back to her, how it's impacted her growing up through life. We hear about her family. 
was it difficult to get Emily on board? And then I'd like you to talk on maybe trying to get some others on board who, who wouldn't quite go on camera. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's not exactly what people want to do. Um, they like to keep quiet about it. Um, yeah, I owe Emily an enormous amount of gratitude for taking the risk and all the other kids who just were, you know, what <laughs> willing is not willing to go on camera is really not what, what happened. They trusted that I would make not, you know, <clears throat> I was going to tell the truth and not make them look like fools, you know, and, and, and there was no reason to make them look like fools because they weren't. But it was trust. And, um, you know, and th there were many that um, told me the same story, all the same thing. And they were really honest and scared to go public about it. And I get it. It's, it's not exactly. I think I hope those people will come forward now, you know, to, to share what they also saw. Because there's people that were not even on camera <clears throat> who saw a lot of detail, specific detail. And that's why I wanted to get them on camera so bad. But, you know, people, one of them, her, she's an, she's an attorney, you know, she was going to college to be an attorney and her dad said, don't do it. It'll kill your career. And, um, and she didn't, but she'll come forward eventually. And I suppose you're right that it's a, a trust thing because it's one thing to sit in front of the camera and, and tell the story and you can tell someone that you're going to do it seriously and objectively and, and treat it with the dignity it deserves. But then they see a finished product and it's got, you know, interesting drum music over the top of it and little flying saucers coming across the screen and the presentation of it can really let that person down and i think we see that and sometimes in other documentaries not just on the ufo subject but in any walk of life where you cut in mid-sentence or you, you stop something halfway through and the total context can be lost so there is a, a huge element of trust and again i appreciate why anyone let alone an attorney wants to stay away from the subject as it stands at the minute but mm -hmm. Has anyone since the documentary come out, like those those people been in touch to to either comment on the documentary or even said they perhaps regret not being involved? No, I, I've had none of that. If anything, I'm still having witnesses come forward. I mean, even though it's took taken 15 years, to, um, it'll be 15 years in September when I started. But every single year, every few months, I get an email, you know, from somebody else that was either there as a witness or somebody was on the scene right after or somebody that lived right near there. I, I mean, it's not stopped. So <clears throat> there's a lot more people. I just, that ho I hope speak up, you know, really, because uh, I think this was a very, very unique event. I'm I know it's not the only one. I there's tons of events that happened that nobody even knows about, but this one, you know, because of everybody that was involved in it, and thank God they filmed these kids at that time, because if they didn't, we would not be talking about this. Yeah, I, I don't think without that footage and the, the documentation of the time, mm -hmm. there's a story there that, that stays for the length of time it has. And I, I want to know, you, you got out to Zimbabwe pretty early on, and no doubt you've, you've visited several times to, to film what you filmed. What surprised you most about the location? Were, were there any feelings or stories particularly you weren't expecting that really jumped out at you? Oh, <laughs> that happened every day. Um, I I guess, uh, well, just one one thing that struck me, and because uh, I went to Wales to to look into the 
just as a reference of uh, an event that had happened before, I went to Wales in uh, to Pembrokeshire. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an incident there at a primary school, and <clears throat> when I was driving around there, I'm like, my gosh, this is just like Rua. The roads were similar. It was really out there, you know, with uh, remote. Um, that surprised me. I was like, God, I, I think I'm in Zimbabwe, but no, I was in Wales. Anyway, that's just one thing that came off the top of my head, and I met a lot of the Wales witnesses um, who are, who didn't want to go on camera because they'd had it. They'd already been on camera, and they're just like, forget the media. We don't want to even talk to anybody anymore. We know what happened. We're not going to talk anymore. It's affected our lives too much. So I heard that over and over and over, but they shared with me, which was really, I, I appreciate that. Um, there were surprises all along. I mean, I didn't even know the BBC was there in the beginning, to be honest. I, I took me two years to find him. He was living a very quiet life. And uh, yeah, there are multiple surprises. I mean, every new witness that I went to see and talked to was a surprise, you know. I was always waiting for, okay, where's the person that's going to say it was made up blah, 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 or yep. the person that's going to say it was hoaxed. You know, I was looking for those people and, uh, and they weren't there. I kept getting that same story of like, no, it really happened. You know, it, something very, very strange happened that day. Even people that don't want to talk about it, that's what they'll tell you. <clears throat> When it comes to the UFO subject, many people getting involved, it's, it's quite simple that are there things or beings or, or craft traveling from other planets to this planet? As you get more involved in the subject and you start to hear alternative theories, you hear about, you know, is consciousness playing a part? Are there aspects of, of potentially time travel? Uh, and some of the things that were involved that, that came out in the, the documentary were the idea that the beings seem to be jumping about. And there's potentially an idea that they were they were slipping in and out of time, or there's some sort of gravitational warp effect happening. Are, are those things that you were aware of before you started filming, or are those ideas that you now embrace? Where where do you sit with the idea of the phenomenon? Mm, that's a deeper question, but yes, I, I am aware of time manipulation, and I don't know how that's possible. But if you think about it in physics around gravity, um, when you have a very strong gravita- gravitational field, you can, if it's powerful enough, you can man- manipulate time. Um, well, we know that from black holes. Um, so <clears throat> I don't know. I, I, you know, the hard thing about this, like I didn't want any special effects at all. Because yeah. how am I going to s- recreate something I can't even, we don't even know really and it's not even worth trying to represent it because we don't there's nothing human that uh you know as a human being that i'm not going to be able to represent that in any a lot of people wanted to do special effects and it's like no it's not going to happen because it's the per it's the witnesses that uh are the ones that saw i can't recreate what they what they saw i don't want to you know what i mean it was yeah Normally in a documentary, I, I don't mind a, a basic special effect recreating and to show you, especially things like the tic-tac. Here's what it was, here's how it moved, and here's what it shot off. But it can be relatively cheap and cheerful, but it, it gets its point across. What what you have with this event and this experience are actually a lot more powerful, but much simpler, is that the drawings the children done 
and I think those are fascinating for all they're they're so different they all depict the same event little differences here and there but I remember speaking to one of my guests some time ago talked about how if you ask you, you, myself and my wife about our wedding day we're both going to tell you a very similar story but certain details throughout it might be slightly different than each of us remember who cut the cake first and do you remember speaking to such and such and someone fell on a chair leg and tripped up actually it was someone else and it's not the fact that either of you are lying it's just with time your memory changes and plays little tricks on you and you and you misremember things but what these kids done was the most fantastic documentation you can get at the time was let's draw what we've seen and and what was it like when you're at the school and you see those drawings and you're, you're seeing what those children remember from that day? Yeah, I guess the drawings were the special effects. Um, yeah, I I mean the drawings came in over a long period of time. I only had a, a I don't know maybe twelve or fifteen in the beginning, and then I kept receive you know kept finding more and more. Like who's got who has the, who has these? So I ended up with I don't know how many I have now. I think I have almost every single one of them. Um, but it took time. Um, but yeah, I looked at the drawings, I mean, from six years old, all the way up to 13. It's a pretty wide range. And, you know, everybody, it's interesting, because, you know, some kids are better artists than others to depict what they have seen. And I love the pictures that I also have other drawings of what the kids drew uh, of the teachers. <laughs> it's okay. really kind of funny. Like, you know, how they depicted their teachers in drawings. And uh, that had nothing to do with that day, but I just found it fascinating uh, how each individual kid had their own, you know, way of expressing themselves on a piece of paper with crayons. Many people talk about other entities, aliens, non-human intelligences, whatever you want to call them, and it can be very divisive. There's a whole group in camp that really refuse to see anything other than positivity and benevolence and you know a sense of warmth and compassion and there are others that talk about you know abductions and and scary experiences and even in this documentary i thought it interesting i i put across the point that for me a lot of the the retelling of the stories from the children's point of view even now as adults it wasn't particularly a pleasant experience. They they mentioned feeling scared or an element of fear or the beings wanted them to go with them. And funnily enough, one of the listeners messaged me saying they took away something different and they felt it was more of a positive experience. How did you feel speaking to those witnesses, whether it was on the phone, Zoom calls, Skype or, or face-to-face, how they reflect on the experience overall? Yeah, most it was always face-to-face. Um pretty much uh, all of them. Um, well, I think you know, anytime you see something that uh, unusual, you're going to have fear. That's just a normal response, and particularly when it's something that's not even supposed to exist. Uh, I know this. I, I, I personally just don't get into the evil, good evil conversation or bad good. I don't know if that works that way in uh, outer space, so to speak. I think anything we see, we're going to have all kinds of, you know, reactions to it. Um, But I've studied the subject fairly well. And, you know, it's very similar, in my opinion, like what we do to wildlife. 
human beings due to wildlife. My God, <laughs> we, we, we tag them, we track them, we kill them. We do, you know, there's a lot of animals we eat. I mean, God, what, what, we, so if you think of, uh, cause I do a lot of photography when I'm out in the wild, I'm like, boy, I guess I'm the alien to them. You know, they don't understand the technology I have. They don't understand any of that. But they look at me and they look at me in the eyes and and say, is this person going to hurt me or not? I don't know. You know what I mean? And I think it's actually really similar to that. We're dealing with, I think, a species that's way more evolved than us. And um, I don't think their intention is, you know, world domination or any of that stuff that we've seen in movies. I just don't think that's the case. Why? There's probably a bunch of other planets just like ours. You know, we know that, you know, that there's likely life-sustaining planets out there. So we're not as special as we think. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's Creator Network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's Creator Network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they've truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts, I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. You've mentioned a few times it's been almost 15 years to make this documentary. It will be 15 years come September. Did you watch any other UFO-type documentaries during the creation of this one? Uh, so you're saying no, obviously. If you're no. listening to this in audio, uh, Randall shook his head there. So I was going to follow up. Did, did anything like that help influence you? Or in that case, if not, what did influence you in making this? Uh, what really influenced me, I, no, I, I have been sort of off the grid for a long time, not really watching anything. Um, what really influenced me was my wildlife shooting, you know, of, you know, filming wildlife in all over the place, Alaska for months and months and Africa for months and months and months um, and all over the world. And I wanted to tell the story in sort of a wildlife way. Like I was the objective observer, you know, filming from a distance and letting things play out as they play out. Which you'll see in the film, it's, it's, I don't, I'm not, none of that's rehearsed. Nothing's rehearsed. It happens in real time as it's happening. And that's, if anything guided me, that was the, was, was my experiences with wildlife and wanting to capture and make a movie like that, you know, 
and um, I, I just wasn't interested in, uh, I was interested in what military said about this subject matter. I was interested in what um, that, that, that level of people and like that's that, that I did go after and um, there's something there. And you mentioned that others wanted you to put in things like special effects. One of the things I would absolutely applaud you for myself is lack of special effects when they're not necessary, uh, lack of celebrities. Um, you know, Mr. William Shatner's an absolute legend when it comes to the small screen and, and the motion pictures, but is he necessarily required in, in documentaries about UFOs or TV shows about UFOs? Um, were you encouraged like that to put in other things that you you didn't want to and also again just plaudits for not injecting yourself throughout the documentary which other people seem to have an issue not doing as well correct um uh, yeah i had uh several famous people that wanted to be in this film and i had to say no and believe me that was really hard yeah you know it would have uh it would have made the film at least on a fame level uh more i don't know i just but it was just like no this is not these people's story um so i i said no uh i said no a lot and it was really hard to say no to some of the things that that have happened um so oh, sorry i missed the second part of that question no, I, I'll follow up a little bit on that because um, Danny Sheehan makes an appearance late in the film, oh, yeah. and I, th I think that very quick appearance and it's left late. He's not inter interspliced throughout the, the the film, the documentary. Really has much more of an impact because you're not expecting that. You've not had talking head after talking head after talking head. It was oh, there's there's Danny Sheehan, and he comes in, and he makes a point, it's really relevant. I think he comes back a second time briefly. And then that's it, and he's gone. So again, that was that was really impactful from from my point of view as well. And I think you're right that there's one that if you could advertise, I'll use Mr. Shatner again. Not that he's listening. Uh, if you could advertise William Shatner and Aerial Phenomenon, there's an element of marketing that's done for you in that respect. But I think what you potentially get is people like myself watching it and going, Ah, we know why they're there. They're not adding, there's there's no element of influence and it really takes away from the story of people like Emily, who's not a celebrity, you know, mm -hmm. the, the people from the village telling their stories, the teachers who are now much more elderly, they get their screen time and it's all, all in that final package and product that really I think is winning the hearts and minds of many people out there, which from a longevity point of view, I think is much more beneficial. Saying that, is the final product what you always imagined or has that changed with the years uh, the final product was like four hours long <laughs> okay. um uh yeah the the real hard part was to condense this film down to an hour and 39 minutes because yeah we had to get close to an hour and a half that's just the standard um and that took a long time because we had to boil it down, even though we have so much more footage and so much more interviews and everything. But we had to we had to get it down to a, a reasonable time. Um, and, you know, we're, I, I want to address it later when we do the director's cut. We can make the longer cut. But I'm satisfied that it tells the story. You know what I mean? Yeah. In a very specific uh 
all the all the 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 the, the big points are are there and non-repetitive and it's all first person there's no second person hearsay none of that it's all first person which is i that makes me feel good because that's hard you know it's not a secondhand story somebody heard about everybody in the movie was was part of it if you took i was going to ask if you if you took that finished product back time traveling 10 or 15 years to yourself and said watch this do you think you would have been happy with it no why not 10, ten years ago mm-hmm. uh no i i don't think it was ready at that time more witnesses came forward and more information came forward more drawings more pictures more video and it wasn't until maybe a couple of years ago that i was like okay i think i've got enough here to really really tell this story and um you know with uh my story editor christopher seward he was just amazing and my crew were amazing because they saw it you know they saw it too um that over time like oh my gosh there's even more you know you get a whole new set of videos that are hours long of these kids being interviewed in 1990s 1997 95 it's just wow it's the same thing I know Dan Aykroyd is on the website is saying, uh, I enjoyed the film greatly. It puts the issue in a touching, emotional place. And Dan Aykroyd himself has a, a really enjoyable documentary that you can find on YouTube. Um, particular parts for me about the Phoenix Lights are really interesting. And he's someone I'd love to speak to down the line on the podcast. So there's been a lot of praise from around the community as well. And that must be really heartening for you at this point because it's 15 years of your life condensed to an hour and 39 minutes at this point. Yeah, it's... I, I really appreciate the, the, the support and everything because it's been hard. It's been really hard um, for, for everybody, not just me, but I, I'm the one that had to carry the weight for so long. But I'm really happy, and Dan's is a fantastic guy, I've got to say. He's, very, he's a very interesting man. He's funny. He's so funny. Anyway, yeah, kudos to Dan. And he's a Ghostbuster, so you can't get much more higher higher praise than that, can you? Um, if, you if you're going to ring about for a, a recommendation or a review, who are you going to call? I have to get that in there. Apologies, folks. Um, l- listen, we're, we're going to, Randall, I mentioned this before we even started, that the, the distribution of the 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 piece itself hasn't been smooth sailing and that's something that you've had to address and your team have online and again i've got to be fair and say they've done a very good job of being active on social media and i've seen them engaging with people who who have had a not so smooth experience in terms of of renting the documentary can you elaborate a little more on what the original plan was for distribution and what changed I can't, uh, you know, we we had big plans for distrib- distribution and um, how do I put this? Um, I had to make a decision about um, a creative decision personally. And then I had a deadline also because, you know, you have to pay for rights to use people's footage. And I had a deadline of uh, May 20th and I didn't have a lot of time to, to, to do that. You know, to get the film out, I had to get it out. And um, so everything was supposed to be smooth. We, we did all the work. I had it, you know, and uh, then our, our site crashed right in the beginning because we had so many hits mm-hmm. on that first day. And we thought we were ready for that. We had a scalable server, commercial server. Um, 
so that failed and um it's just been working since that time been working at getting the bugs out because when you have that happen uh it, it it was like a domino effect um so in a way our release now is to get what's what we're finding out is getting the bugs out which we're pretty close to uh completing that um i've had to hire a lot more people to um everybody's just overwhelmed you know um we knew it was going to do well and we're going to go to likely a, a much larger streamer very very soon um but we wanted you know what, what i really wanted to do was get the film out the way that i made it without any changes um before we got it to somebody bigger I can appreciate that. And I think it's very easy for people to say online, you know, why didn't you just go to Netflix or Amazon Prime? And I don't think it's a case of of knocking on the door and saying, hi, Mr. Amazon, can you show my documentary? It's not necessarily how it works, is it? Well, we've we've been dealing with really huge names for five years. Um, But when it really came down to it, uh, yeah, I mean, we had we were talking to all those people. So, but again, it came down to changes um, people wanted to make that I didn't feel were um, gonna gonna be. I don't know. And more like what we were talking about before, having famous people in there and all that. Yeah. It's like, no, and, the and- it's their story. It's their story. Let them tell it. We don't need anybody famous or anybody in there. Every there's a lot of famous people in there. Just straight up. So anyway, it was a it was just a creative. Uh, I had to stand up and say no to crazy things. And you I know what? Love to say, huh? I was going to say we've got, we've got a very recent example, and we were very honest. And I've told people to go and watch it and make up their own mind, just our opinion. But the way a tear in the sky turned out, and I'm grateful UAPX were so honest about the final product because it was really their their documentary that someone came in who provided funding that then had a creative license over UAPX's project, and it turned out the way it did. And what we're saying, folks, is that, yeah, there's been some hitches and glitches in terms of distribution, but what you've got is someone presenting an honest and what their vision was for a final product and not giving up that sway and creative control. So if you can support now, yeah, you can wait and times are tough. We're in a cost of living crisis. God knows I've got people support this podcast who could wait and they could get it free, but they choose to support. If you really are interested in this subject and you want quality documentaries, honest documentaries that are really getting to the heart of the subject, then spend some money if you have it and and rent the documentary while you can now because it helps keep documentaries like this being produced in an honest and and, and reasonable way like you've done. Yeah, it's hard. You know, and I encourage other filmmakers, stand your ground. Like, I know there's, it's a lot of temptation, you know, but if you really want to get your vision done, you got to stay with it and t- and just say no to things that you are really difficult to say no to. I want to ask though uh, something that has come up from several lis- several listeners as they they want to buy, especially for when it's twenty dollars as as the price, they want to buy a copy of it right now. It's only available to rent. What's the the reasoning behind that, and when are the plans for it to be available to buy? Um. We're, we're most, most, when, when you do video on demand, that's kind of the way it is. They, 
they don't sell it right away. If you go to any other, we're, we're following the model that uh, other video on demand people do. Um, and it's because you, you have, you know, I've, I've got a million dollars out, million dollars that I owe. So uh, if you sell it, right, that's, this is why other people, they don't do it till later because they need to get back their investment, mm-hmm. right? And because once it, once you start selling it, it starts to go all over the place, you know, all over YouTube, da-da-da-da-da. You have less protection over it. I mean, we're going to do that. There's no question about it. Um, but we're following the VOD model um, uh, for now. Um and we're going to, you know, it's going to be, we're going to see how things go and um, adjust as we go, you know. But really the drive for me personally, I just want everybody to see it, you know. Not, it's not really about the money and at the end of the day. I want people to see this movie because everybody on the planet needs to see it, to be and, honest. And I- and, and yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. And I know there will be people because it's 2022 and this is what people are like who will say, well, if it's not about the money, then give it away free. But then you're a million dollars in the yeah. hole. And that's <laughs> that's OK. I understand that thought. But yeah, I got I got to suffer with that. If I don't pay that back, I anyway. Yeah, no, no, that's that's totally fair. <laughs> and when when that uh, movie or documentary becomes available to buy, you've mentioned a, a director's cut. Will there be things potentially like alternative footage, um, cutting room floor footage, oh, yeah. and yeah? Well, when I first started making the movie, I started more of a science approach to it, like factual, like okay, this, 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 and this number, this person's over here, and all the mathematical um, and evidentiary stuff. And then I kind of got th- through that and I'm like, all right, I'm convinced by what I am seeing. You know, that's the movie I kind of wanted to make in the beginning. And then it was like, no, these people just need to, I, mean, I need to tell their story from them, not me, you know? And I decided earlier on, I didn't want to be in this movie like, or interfere with that or have a narrator in there to interfere. Cause narrators do, um, put opinion in. And mm-hmm. that's why it was so difficult to make this movie because everybody, the, the witnesses tell the story. The people that were there tell the story. There's no narration. It's coming from these people's mouths. There was one documentary very late last year that we reviewed that the overwhelming feedback on, I won't name it because people don't know what it was and a lot of famous names from ufology were involved, but uh, the music played uh, throughout without stopping and it was like the movie had a soundtrack the whole way through and it was so distracting that it never ever gave up and it really turned people off and like you say, you're very much watching a raw documentary here because you're focusing on the story, the people what happened, the the pictures, the evidence and the testimony. And again, that, that all really comes across. Um, I just want to ask, before we get to some listener questions, Randall, to finish off, if people have had difficulty accessing the documentary, hopefully by this point the, the bugs and such are being worked out and people have got their copies, do Correct. you have the details of who they can contact? Yes. Uh, it's support at aerialphenomenon.com. Yeah, brilliant. I'll put the details as well in the description of the the podcast as well. We're trying to get everything, you know, it's, it doesn't make me feel good because we've spent such a great uh, amount of time trying to get this perfect, you know, the film and everything else. And our launch was uh, 
not acceptable to me in a lot of ways, you know, but, but I tell you, everybody's working so hard, you know, and we will, and we're bringing on new people so we can get help, you know, more help hands on deck. I just want to check, Randall, the, the email address on the Twitter account is tech at aerialphenomenon.com. Should it be that or support at aerialphenomenon.com? I think it's support. Okay. I'll get that checked. The only reason I, I'm doing all the, the press and so I'm kind of, other people are uh, um, handling that. They I, I do touch base with them off many, many times a day. <laughs> no, no, that that's fine. Just checking uh, on the website as well. It does say tech at aerialphenomenon.com. So yeah, use the tech one, folks. But that's just in the, the rare circumstances now that you have any issues. But People are watching it. People are streaming it. I've seen plenty of comments on folks saying how much they've loved it. So those bugs are certainly being worked out the system. Uh, Randall, a couple of listener questions to finish off, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, so the first question, uh, we had a very similar question from Mr. Calhoun and Mark. Did any of the kids involved in the aerial school and their families have any further encounters of high strangeness or even things like abductions in the follow-up? Uh, I can't say anything about that. I, I can't be specific um, bec- because of, uh, let's just say the the answer is yes, but uh, I can't go into that. And that's fair enough. There's, there's people who have stories. Um, I know yourself, you've spoken on several podcasts already, and uh, I, I won't be as remiss just to ask you the question because the answer is going to be no. Um, on, on Jimmy Church and Summer in the Skies, uh, you, you said you won't talk about your own experience as it will detract from the story of the children and what you're trying to get across and, and your own personal reasons. Uh, Nick, who listens to the podcast, says that as an experiencer himself, he very much appreciates that and would love to hear that when the time was right. Um is there a time you feel you will be able to talk about your own experiences? Yes. I don't know when that time is. To me, it's not that important. You know, what's important is, um, you know, some of the pilots, Navy guys, you know, Air Force guys coming out. They'll change it. I won't. Hopefully, and that's what we're hearing in Congress that wasn't a part of the the first hearings, but hopefully going forward, we do get we do get that sort of testimony coming out. And a lot of people who listen to this podcast and, and watch this podcast tell us that they're experiencers and they have their own, you know, issues or th- these these threads throughout their life where they've had this involvement from something else. And I think people like yourself coming out and just mentioning it on those mainstream platforms as well is a little bit of comfort and they feel a little bit vindicated that they hear even you mentioning that you've had that experience. Good. I, I, you know, and, and I salute those people because it's hard, you know? So I, I salute those people. And uh, I um, guess that's kind of the drive is like, let's help people that are not, haven't been heard yet. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, Valis, your question was answered. You had asked, will there be extra footage or deleted scenes available when it comes to purchase? Uh, the answer to that was, was yes. Uh, James, Jack, he asks, why do you think, uh, and you sort of touched on this with the, the whales um, answer earlier, but why do you think this may have happened in Zimbabwe where it did? Any ideas at all? And maybe why a school? Well, there's more than a few schools that this has occurred at. Um yeah, the public would probably want to be aware of that um, at some point. Um, I don't know. I There will be somebody speaking uh, pretty soon about the reason they think this happened from a, 
um, a higher level perspective. Um, but uh, I mean, it's just interesting, you know, why kids and um, it kind of makes sense to me. You, you, you know, uh, just I go again back to the wildlife perspective. Kids tell you a lot, you know, the pups tell you a lot. Um, the little baboons tell you a lot. <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time with baboons in a troop, following them around for a long period of time. But anyway, um, yeah, I don't know how else to answer that. Um, there's, there's definitely going to be some other um, pretty big things that have to do with this particular event that I can't speak about, but other people will. Was there ever a, a mention or talk of the uranium mines that are about 30 to 50 miles from the school being a reason potentially for this case and its its vicinity to where it was? Um, that's, yeah, there's somebody else that can speak about that, but uh, I don't know where you heard that. That's uh, somebody, was that a viewer that said something? Do you know what? A few people have mentioned this and a couple of listeners got in touch with that as well. But I know other people have, have brought that up as as well, something in that area. Yeah. I, I, think I can't, I can't say getting... I'd rather have the person that is much more uh, credible in, a, in, a, in an official way speak about that. I think people are getting more switched on to even some of these older incidents that maybe things that weren't considered at the time. They're now looking back to see, are, are there nuclear tests nearby? Is there, you know, again, uranium mines, things like that. And you start to piece together that actually a lot of these these locations maybe have things in common that 20, 30 years ago we, we didn't realise. But, but that'll be interesting to see if, if other uh, information comes out on that. Yeah, we, you know, we, we, we're, we're able to see now our entire planet from all these high-res satellites. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a different world, so we can see a bigger picture and start to put those things together where we just didn't have the tech to do it. Now we do. Um, Ryan wanted to know that he's heard there was a second craft potentially. Is that true, or was it just the one craft that was seen? No. I, well, it was one main event, but in the sky beforehand, uh, and it, it's a question mark, but there was one main one, and I've heard numerous times that there were more than one from from the witnesses. So, uh, yeah, please go on. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, but the main event was one particular craft, object, whatever you want to call it, oval, an oval rock, <laughs> as some of the 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 the. Um, the people said in the village, or it was like two baskets put together, one upside down. Mm -hmm. one, I mean, they didn't even have the language for, for, um, they didn't know anything about UFOs, flying saucers or any of that. Let, let me, anyway. that, that's, that's one of the beauties of, of this, this story is, but we hear the story very much told from a perspective as and when it happened. And some of those children have grown <laughs> up, but we've only heard from a couple of them. You've spoken to many more off the record. Is there any danger, in your opinion, given you've spoken to these people who don't want to come forward, that if other witnesses to the event do, given the length of time that's passed, 
does the story change at all? The details get added that maybe did or didn't happen, but because of the length of time, we talked about how memories change over time. And could that dilute the story, or, or do you think there's the possibility to enhance the story? Oh, I think it'll enhance it. I, I don't, I mean, at least everybody I've talked to, they've never added or subtracted anything to their story because they remember like it happened yesterday. You know, when something like this happens to you, you don't ever forget it. You know, it's clear. So I, I don't, I'm not worried about that. Not at all. If anything, more witnesses that come forward, the more it's going to be um, validated. That that's a positive because what I'm even thinking is we hear about the the famous infamous famous whatever you want to call it now tic tac event that as more military witnesses have come forward and the stories are changed slightly people start to even call each other out as witnesses and say no that never happened and that data wasn't taken away actually that data was taken away we saw who took it away and it starts to muddy the water slightly but again as time changes and slight details change and with social media being how it is everyone's an expert you know uh, and a detective well it's like a bunch of squirrels like we are you know running around talking about blah 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 blah. meanwhile we got a bigger problem going on (laughs) you know we we get into our own little circles of social and uh animals do the same thing and uh we got a much bigger problem and that's what we need to pay attention to. And that's what universities need to be like, really, in my opinion, we need to address it to, to understand what we're dealing with and what their intentions are and start to get some hard facts on paper so we can actually look at it and make good decisions. And you say that about education. I'm just going to pull up now. Really, I never do this. Really unprofessional. But um, my regular co-host, Dan, he mentioned earlier on Twitter that uh, Scholastic News, which is a, a magazine or, or e-magazine that goes around uh, educational facilities this month, the front page is our aliens out there, big picture of a flying saucer. And this is going around classrooms that teachers and students will see. So that exposure to the, the the educational side of things is there. And it's got a little timeline within it of of famous sightings and everything like that as well. So that that really will help those kind of future generations push this this topic forward. The fu- future you know, the younger generations are already there. They already they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna um take off where where our generation and my parents' generation, I don't want to say failed but just didn't pick up the ball. Uh, and I just want to give Dave a little shout out, one of the longtime listeners, and he did have uh, uranium mining in his question, by the way. So I just want to give him a little bit of acknowledgement um, on that one too. So thanks, Dave. Um, and, and one more thing for me, Randall, I wonder your opinion on this, that the children report that they were told at the time, and this was the mid-90s, about environmental messages and the dangers of technology and whatnot, do you think we talked about time as well and potential time travel and whatnot that comes into the hypothesis of, of these beings? Do you think those children and that event happened when it did, not for it to be a story at the time, but for that story to be told now? Because as this documentary has been released, it just happens to be in the same year we have congressional hearings as the mainstream picks up on the story again, not too long after we've had the UAP task force report. And things seem to be picking up steam. What do you think of that kind of causality, synchronicity, or or relationship between then and now? Um, yeah, it was a lot of film people that actually told me that you're not in control of the film. 
the film will decide when it wants to come out or needs to come out. That may sound strange, um, but that's true. Um, It was in January of this year uh, when I was like, it's time. I just knew like the film wants to come out now. Isn't that strange? It's like its own entity. And when you put so much energy and time and passion into any project there, there's a time that it'll, it'll, let you know in some weird way. It's very strange to be honest. Um, but I, yeah, it came out exactly when it needed to. Yeah. And it's having a profound effect as well. Like I loved it. I thought it was great. Oh, thank you. Um, I want to ask though, it's had a hugely positive reaction and has this release and the, the reaction to it driven you to make anything else on the subject? And are you thinking that the next piece you make in the next documentary is again going to be UFO related? Well, personally, I'd like to make a nature film. <laughs> um, but but this is part of nature. That's the thing that uh, we don't understand on a large scale yet. But um, yeah, I, I don't think this is over. Um, and I am thinking about what the next step is you know, what, what does, what do we need to, to be hearing or what do we need to know about at this point? What's the next uh, thing that humanity is going to have to get used to? Um, and so it is on my mind, of course, because this is a long project that's closing. And, you know, after, after the director's cut is released, then I, then I, I have a, I have a project that I already know what it is, um, but I can't speak about it because as soon as, nobody knows about it. So, <laughs> not yet. As soon as you say anything, somebody else will go out there and try to do it themselves, and I don't want that to happen. Sure, I've already done a lot of work on it. No, I can appreciate that. We've all been there where we've announced something on a podcast, and before you know it, and you've had the chance to record it, someone else releases a very similar version. It's so, it happens the, the film world, it's brutal. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned nature just as we finish up. Uh, my, my regular co-host, Dan, just released his first own spin-off show to this, Colouring Outside the Lines, and his guest was a Dr. Michelle Forney. And the, the whole episode is on whale language and decoding how whales speak to each other in whale song, but very much with an underlying tone of alien language and, you know, other non-human intelligence and how it can all come back round. And um, if anyone has an interest in especially what you're saying there about nature and the connection between UFOs, certainly check that one out. I'd love to see it. Could you send me the link to that? I'll certainly put that and I'll put it in the link to this description as well, but I'll send it over to you, Randall. Don't worry. Thank you. I appreciate it because I really love to, that's, that's right up my alley. It, it goes off the beaten track, but it keeps a relevance that we don't normally get to on this podcast. So um, you'll appreciate it. You'll enjoy it. Um, but folks, listen, this is genuinely one of the best documentaries on the UFO subject I have ever seen. Um, www.aerialphenomenon.com. It's available to rent now. It will be available to purchase soon. And I highly recommend it. Randall, thank you very much for your time. Andrew, thank you so much. Be well. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see.
It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bit. Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was red. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And they think I should because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think they'd be, I guess you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jake?